So today we're going to talk about kind of an interesting idea when it comes to John chapter 14. And the first question I want to ask you this morning is this. Um, how many of you like spicy foods? I see some hands. All right. How many of you do not like spicy foods? All right. I see some hands. I like spicy foods. Some people don't. Now, let me ask you, those of you that don't like spicy foods. OK, we're going to start with you. Are you kind of like, I just don't like the taste of them or I'm, they're OK, but they're not my favorite. Or are you like coming close to them? It gives me hives like what? Anybody here, like, I can't stand them at all, like, I get away from them, got, okay, got one of those. All right, the spicy food lovers for us, all right? How many of you are like, I like, like, a good jalapeno, or I like some good Mexican food with some spice in it? Or anybody here, like, no, I want to push the limits of what the spice can do. Anybody here? We got one. George Hagen says he is, all right? Good thing is, George, I've got some hot sauce in the back. That's the hottest I could find. We're going to... No, I'm just kidding. All right? So, what happens when you eat spicy food? What happens to your body when you eat spicy food? What's that? You perspire. You get hot, right? You start to wipe the sweat off your brow, right? What else happens? You want lots of water. You want something... You just get thirsty, right? Stuff starts running. Right? Like his nose starts filling up, right? Is that what you said, Jimmy? Okay. Yeah. Indigestion, yeah. Start to that that GERD, that gastro reflux starts happening, right? You you get sweaty. Do do you know what causes all of that, by the way? It's one little thing in the peppers called capsaicin. And it's a chemical that when you eat something spicy, it locks onto your tongue and to some inhibitors in your tongue, and it sends a false signal to your brain that something is like you are eating boiling water. It also has a chemical in it that inflares the membranes of your nostrils and makes it think you got to get something out of your body. Your body starts to fight immediately against the spice that is happening. In fact, scientists cannot really understand why anybody likes spicy food. Because it works against your body. They've developed, I don't know if you know this or not, they developed a scale to show hotness on peppers, by the way. So here's the scale on peppers. And what's interesting is, um, like for me, a jalapeno is pretty hot. A serrano pepper chili is pretty hot. But if you look, and you, you may not be able to see this, but on this graph here, from the bottom, bell peppers on the very bottom, they're not hot at all. Okay? You're like, I like peppers, I like bell peppers. No, that's not what I'm talking about, all right? If you go up like four, you get the poblano, two more. So the sixth one from the bottom is jalapeno. From the bottom. Right above that serrano. Now, as you get closer to the top, now, just so you know, a jalapeno on the Scoville scale, I don't know how they came up with these numbers. It's arbitrary, I'm sure, but we're going to go with them. On the jalapeno scale, it's somewhere around 2,500 to 8,000. That says, that's, that's, and those out there that like jalapenos or think they're too spicy, that's pretty spicy, right? When you start getting up, they start getting bad names. Like the ghost pepper. Because it turns you into a ghost. Has 800,000 Scofields. 
Or you go up to the Trinidad Scorpion Butch Tea. 1.4 million Scovilles. Or you go up two more from that, Carolina Reaper. I don't know what a Carolina Reaper is, but I don't intend to find out. Can I get an amen in the house? Has 2.2 million. I want you to think for a minute. If a jalapeno is 8,000, what in the world does 2.2 million taste like? Right? Now, just to give you another idea, maybe you like hot sauce. I've got some hot sauce scales on the next. We're going, we're going somewhere. Y'all don't worry. We're going somewhere, all right, with all this. And so maybe you're, you're one of these people. Anybody here like to put a little Tabasco on your food? Got some Tabasco lovers. Right, that's just 3,700 Scovilles. That's it. You think, what's hot? Or Cholula's just 3,600. Or if you get really hot, the Marie Sharp's fiery hot sauce is 6,700. The Carolina Reaper's 2.2 million. Now here's why I put this up. I don't know if you know this, but people do weird things on the internet. Did y'all know that? Like people do weird things on the internet for the sole purpose of doing weird things on the internet so people will watch them doing weird things on the internet. But I read this week about an interesting thing on the internet and I'm not, I'm not endorsing or asking you to go watch it because when I read the article about it, it said it was uncensored and if it says that, usually it means it's uncensored, alright? And it's a show on the internet, on YouTube, where someone interviews celebrities, big time celebrities, and they have lined up in front of them a 10 buffalo hot wings from about 1,000 Schofields to 1.5 million. And the celebrity takes a bite of the wing and then the interviewer asks them a question. And as the wings get hotter, the questions get more personal and tougher. Because here's what the interviewer says. By the time you get towards the end, you're no longer thinking about what the question is. You can't concentrate on anything but the fire in your mouth. And so you'll say things you never expected to say. Which is why it's probably uncensored, right? Isn't that an interesting concept? As the heat gets turned up, the questions get more difficult. You ever notice that sometimes in life, As our circumstances and the heat in our lives get turned up, the questions we have to answer and the decisions we have to make become more and more difficult and more personal. That is the circumstances of our lives, as we go towards that scale from a little bit to moderate to really hot, that the questions we have to answer, the decisions we have to make, the things we have to decide get harder and more difficult. And the truth is, we know just from experience, as my father-in-law says all the time, that you're either in a crisis, coming out of a crisis, or about to go into a crisis. That crisis mode in our lives is happening on all occasions. When you have a young family, you know that, because you're never more than two hours away from some illness infiltrating the house. Everybody's fine and good, and then you're getting ready for bed, and one of them walks in and says, Daddy, I don't feel well. Mommy, my tummy hurts. And your life is thrown out. Now, there are much bigger crises than that. But you're always right there in the midst of it. Today, what I want to do 
is look at how we handle things when the heat gets turned up. We're going to do that in John chapter 14. I told you to turn there earlier. Hopefully you're already there. We're going to look at this passage of scripture and you say, well, what does this have to do with the heat being turned up? Well, here's the thing. Jesus is in the midst of the longest section of teaching that he will do in the entire New Testament. It's called the Upper Room Discourse. It is immediately before he is arrested. These are the last instructions to his disciples before his crucifixion. And in chapter 13 where it starts, we're going to be in 14, but in chapter 13 where it starts, we see him start to chop truths that were getting increasingly difficult for the disciples to understand or comprehend. He was turning up the heat on their training. Here's the reality. They had been simmering for a while in their training for three years. And Jesus gets to the last 12 hours and realizes it's time to full on give them everything they need before I get crucified. And so he tells them that one of the 12 of them would betray him and one of the 12 of them would betray them to the authorities. And they start to ask questions about that. And Peter says, well, it'll never be me, Jesus. And Jesus says, what are you talking about, Peter? You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Oh, no, Peter, I'm not going to. what is he talking about? And in the midst of that, he drops the biggest bomb of them all. He says to them, I'm leaving you. I'm going away. And as they progress from the mild to the sort of warm, to the hot truth that Jesus is sharing, you can almost sense that their indigestion is rising. That there's a lump in their throat, that their eyes are starting to water, that there's a hollow in the pit of their stomach. And he wants to give them relief. Before he continues to something more, he wants to give them relief. Now, we'll do a little tip here in the midst of this. When you get spicy food, does anybody know the best thing to do to to get rid of the spice in your mouth? It's not water. It's not bread. It's milk. Dairy. Not Diet Coke. That's worse. It's like, no wonder I don't like hot food. I've been doing the wrong thing. There's something in milk that counteracts the hotness of the of the spice. In fact, they say the best thing is half and half. Just take a big old jug of half and half and go at it. John chapter 14 verses 1 through 6 is Jesus giving some milk to some men whose mouths are on fire figuratively because of all they've been hearing from him. Starting in verse 1. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I'm going. Lord Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
So here's what I want to do today. I want to talk about three ways that Jesus gives his disciples in what is about to be the most difficult moments of their lives. In just a few minutes, they are going to walk out of this room. They're going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas is going to walk up, kiss him on the cheek. Jesus is going to be arrested. And within 12 to 18 hours, Jesus is going to be languishing on a cross in front of them. Their master, their teacher, their Lord, their Savior will be killed by the Roman and Jewish authorities within the day. And so whatever instructions Jesus is giving them about how to beat the heat, how to survive this moment in this moment is vital for them. And it's got to be vital for us. Three things that he tells them, three ways to remain calm when the heat is on. First of all, trust his word. Look what he says to him right there. He says, you believe in me. Trust in me. Now, he starts by telling them to quit worrying. That's a that's a modern paraphrase. But basically, he says, stop worrying. Stop worrying about it. Quit worrying. R-E-L-A-X. Relax. I know you're hearing terrible things. I know the future is uncertain. I know you got a terrible diagnosis. I know you can't understand how you're going to bring your family back together. I know you don't know how the finances are going to come together. Stop worrying. Do not be troubled. Believe in me. You believe in God and you believe in me. Remember what I've taught you. Remember how I've walked with you. Remember what I've done. Remember how I've showed you the Father. Trust in my plan. Trust in who I am. Trust in my who I'm called to be. Trust who I've called you to be. Obey my instructions. Live like I've told you to live. Remember, I'm the real deal. Believe in God. Believe in me. The truth is that if we're going to make it in this world, we are going to have to learn again as believers to know, obey, and trust his word. You realize that no matter how involved you are in the technological nature of our culture, you are receiving much more information than anyone in your past ever received. Right? You say, well, I'm not up on all the current stuff. Well, you're more up on the current stuff than the person that lived a hundred years ago. And you are getting more information than you ever need. You can't handle all the information you get. I can't handle all the information I get. We can't collect it. We can't organize it. We can't figure it out. I was listening to a um, a book this week on on um, while I'm driving. Listen to it's not on tape because we don't do tapes anymore. It's not even on disc because we don't do disc anymore. It's on my phone, played through a Bluetooth on my car. But I'm listening to a book, and it was talking about the amount of data that the weather. People in Noah are collecting every day from around the world. And you realize that every day Noah of the United States government collects more weather data than the data found in the entire collection of the Library of Congress. Every day. What in the world are we going to do with all that? Right? And in a world where there is information coming at us from every direction, we must remember that the only information that we can 100% trust in is God's Word. 
There may be fake news all over the place on every side of the political aisle, but God's word is never fake. It is always true. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 16 says all scripture is inspired by God is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training. So that the man of God may be complete and equipped to do the works of God. And this is why it's important. When the heat is turned up in your life, you need a constant, something that grounds you. He's telling the disciples this again. Don't lose the context. He realizes that in just a few hours they are going to scatter. They are going to run. They are going to leave. They are going to desert. The one that's going to stay closest to him is going to deny him. Only one will stand at the foot of the cross from what we see in Scripture, and that is John. The rest of them will be gone. And he knows that in the midst of that, they're going to question everything they have about him. They're going to question who they are. They're going to question what they believe. They're going to question what they've done with the last three and a half years of their lives. They're going to worry about what does this mean for me in the future. And he says, in the midst of all of that, when you've got pressure on you, when you've got things happening, when you've got life coming at you, when everything is enveloping you in that moment, trust In me and the word that I have provided. One of my favorite movies of all time is a a movie called Inception. And I I like smart movies that are written well. And Inception is just a, it it is an amazingly written movie. And many of you may not have seen the movie, but the idea of the movie is that there are brain scientists that can now put dreams into people's minds and give them ideas deep in those dreams that they will then act upon in society. And the problem is that people enter into other people's dreams. I know it's weird, all right? But the main characters know that they're going into other people's dreams, and so they have to have something with them, a token that they have that they can assure themselves that it is real so they can know whether they're in a dream or they're in real life. We were driving yesterday, and Ava decided to tell us a crazy dream she had from the night before. And it was something about killer deer running through Madison Creek Elementary. I'm not real sure what it was all about. And Luke just looks at me as if he's had an epiphany. And he says to me, Dad, do you ever realize that when you're dreaming something, you actually think it's real? But then you wake up and you think it's the most ridiculous thing that could ever happen. It's like it just came on, right? There are lots of times in our lives when the circumstances of our lives can convince us of a reality that is not true. And in those moments, we need something, a token to hold on to, to say this is what is true. And for us, it's Scripture. The Bible teaches truth, purpose, direction, instruction, Right from wrong, what we should do and not. Number two. Not only do we trust his word, but in the second thing we do is we remember our home. Verse two, what does he say? In my father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you I'm going away to prepare a place for you. 
Anybody want to guess where I preach John 14 more than any other place usually? Funerals, right? Because we talk about the fact that this is not our home. This is not where we're destined to be, that God is preparing a place for us. Now, just a couple of notes in there. If you have an old King James Version, it says, In my father's there are many mansions. Well, that's not a real good interpretation of what the original says. What the original says is this idea, not that we get our own mansion on a hill that nobody else can come and see us in, but that we're all living together in an unbelievable community and you have the most splendid room in the community. Now, again, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Whether you got a mansion or you got an apartment in heaven, it's going to be better than anything you've ever imagined. Amen. Ain't nobody going to get there and go, man, I was hoping for 500 more square feet. Man, I wanted open concept. Right? Nobody's going to be calling Chip and Jojo to come remodel your heavenly home. Right? I don't know what they're going to do in heaven, but they're not going to be fixing up. Okay? And so what we have here is he says, I'm going away. And when I go away, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And it's so easy in the midst of difficulty when the heat gets turned up. He wants these guys to know, listen, even when this ends badly, even in the next 24 hours, when I am going to be on a cross, even in the midst of that, when it's ending badly, know this. This is not our ultimate home. It's temporary. Now, I do want to tell you. That that's true, that heaven is being prepared for those who have a relationship with him. It is not our default destination. The default destination for all humanity is hell. But for those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, for those of us that believe in him and have accepted the forgiveness of sin in our lives, what we see is that our home should motivate our lives on this place. Second Corinthians 4.17 says, For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. And the truth is, all of us, deep down, have a longing for somewhere that we have never seen or experienced. Is it Beulah Land that starts out with that phrase? I'm kind of homesick, right, for a place I've never known, never seen, never heard of, really. No eyes seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him C.S. Lewis calls this desire within us an inconsolable longing. He says, there have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever really desired anything but heaven. It is the secret signature of each soul to desire heaven. The incommunicable and unappeasable want, the thing we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work, which we will still desire on our deathbed when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work. He says the thing that our soul longs for that we cannot get enough of is heaven. And that is why nothing on this earth will satisfy. Nothing on this earth will satisfy. You cannot fill your life with enough family even, career, money, to satisfy you. Because you were built for eternity with God. 
And when those difficult moments come, when the heat begins to rise around you, when you're on that eighth wing and life is asking you questions that you don't know how you're going to answer, in the midst of that, you must remember, even if this all goes downhill today, this is not it. That doesn't mean there's not pain. That doesn't mean there's not suffering. That doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. But in the end, we go to a different place and God's going to take care of that. We trust him. He says, listen, guys. Tomorrow afternoon, you are going to be at the lowest point of your life because you are going to physically see, hear, know that I have died. And you're going to wonder about everything in your life. But remember, this is not the end. Now, for us, after 2,000 years of history, that's a pretty common thing to understand. But during their time, there was debate about whether there was even an afterlife. And Jesus is consoling them, saying, there is, and I'm going to go get it ready for you. I heard somebody say one time, if God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and it is as magnificent as it is, even in a fallen state, what is it going to look like when he's been preparing for 2,000 years? Right? I don't know what it's going to look like, but I'm ready to go see it. He tells them, trust me. Trust my word. Trust in who I am. Secondly, remember your home. And third, remember the end. He tells them in verse 3, If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I'm going to say that again because that's a good place for an amen. And sometimes y'all need me to say it a couple of times before you get there. All right. If I go away, has he gone away? Yes. If I go away, I will come again. Sometimes it takes you three times to get your amen. All right. Are we going to get there? All right. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Woo! There you go. That's good. I thought we were going to go real long today just because we're getting the amens out. He said, I'm going to come get you. And I'm going to take you to myself. That where I am, you may also be. Did you know that newspapers, when they used to put big, bold headlines about the most major events in history. Now, y'all know, y'all remember what newspapers are, right? Y'all remember those things? Okay. Back, back when newspapers were king... They used to, when they had a big line, for instance, this was used when Kennedy was assassinated. Do you know what they called the font on that? The second coming type. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Every event in the history of the world that has been used with the second coming type fails to measure in the least to the true second coming. The biggest news story in the world has not happened yet because it will when he comes again and he is. And I don't know about you, but when I see things like what happened this week in our own country and all that's happening around it, I'm saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I'm ready. And that's really the question today. Are you ready? I saw this bumper sticker the other day. I don't know if you've ever seen this bumper sticker. I love it. Just a simple question in that bumper sticker, right? 
Are you red E? Oh, you got it. There you go. Good. I'd ask you if you, any of y'all got that for right off, but I don't want anybody to have to lie in church, so I won't ask you that. Are you ready? And Jesus kind of leads him into that because he says to him, and now you know where I'm going. And Thomas goes, well, why don't you tell us where you're going, just in case. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The only way you can be ready for any fire that's going to come, but ultimately for the fire that doesn't come close to registering on the Scoville scale, because it is beyond what anything could be, the fires of eternity in hell. The only way you can prepare to defeat that, the only way that you can prepare to not have to go through that, is to trust in Jesus as your Savior. That's my question today. Are you ready? Not as your name on a church roll, not have you been baptized at some point in your life, even though you didn't accept Jesus before that. Are you ready to meet Jesus? We never know when that's going to happen. For some of us in this room, it could be this week. We could step out of this earth into eternity this week. As Jesus is telling the disciples as he is literally about to do the most important thing in history at that moment, he is about to go to the cross to die for your sins and mine. Because we have a problem with our kids. We're going to have all the kids in the uh, first through um, fifth grade, all the way up through youth. We're all going to be in worship together in the second worship. Our family worship we do at the end uh, on fifth Sundays. We do Lord's Supper together. With the kids, we have this little thing we call the God's plan for me. You're never too old to remember God's plan for us in the gospel. We talk about the fact that God rules, that God created it all, that the Bible tells us that God created everything, including you and me, and He is in charge of everything, and that He created us for a relationship with Him, that He created us to live with Him, that He created us to be His friend. To be the one that would work his plan out on this earth. But we, secondly, chose to sin. We all chose to disobey God. Adam and Eve committed the first sin when they ate of the fruit that God told them not to eat of. But we, day after day after day, choose still to sin in our own way. To walk away from God. To do the things that God has called us not to do. The Bible calls it sin when we separate ourselves from God. When we disobey God. When we remove ourselves from God's plan. Sin separates us from what God has called us to do. Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned. And Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. And so we all deserve to spend eternity away from God. But God provided a way. Yet while we were still sinners, God sent His Son, Jesus. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He sent the perfect solution for you and me to wipe away our sin. And Jesus gives us an opportunity to accept that forgiveness because he lived a perfect life. He died for our sins and he rose again from the grave. And today he gives you that chance to be able to say yes to him. But it requires that we respond. That we believe in our heart that Jesus alone saves you 
through what he's already done on the cross. That we repent, that we pronounce that we're going to turn from our sin and turn towards Jesus. And then we tell other people that we have followed Christ with our lives. Are you ready? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you trusted Him as your Lord? Have you given your life to Him? If you are, if my guess is, in this room, at this time, most of us have and are. But are you living your life to be as ready as you could possibly be? Or are you letting the things of this world crowd out the importance of what we're thinking about for eternity? Let's pray together.